This is a 720 to go podcast from Chicago's WGN Radio 720. This podcast is sponsored by ADM. As one of the world's largest agricultural processors, ADM is uniquely positioned to serve the world's growing needs for abundant food and renewable energy. ADM. When it comes to the business of America's farmland, you need the information from the people who know it best. That's why we bring you AgriCast with Orion Samuelson and Max Armstrong. Good morning, everyone, and thanks to Roger, and thanks to all of you for joining us here for our weekly look at the world's most basic and important industry, producing food agriculturally. And it's a pleasure to come together with you every Saturday morning here on WGN Radio. And again, some interesting guests to talk to this morning because we're going to talk markets when Max joins us after 5.30 with Clayton Pope. And before we do that, we'll take you back to Kansas City a week or so ago at the National Convention of the National Association of Farm Broadcasters, where I had the opportunity to sit down and visit with several interesting people. As a matter of fact, I'm going to share one of those visits with you when we continue here on the Saturday Morning Show. At the Farm Broadcasters Convention, we sit down with a longtime friend, Terry Moore, who I first met when she worked for Secretary of Agriculture Mike Johans, and now she is Vice President of Communications for the American Farm Bureau Federation. And that's a big job because you have quite an event ahead of you, do you not? We do. We just celebrated 100 years, and so officially marked this week, and we'll, we'll do some more celebrating. But it's been a delightful time to join the organization. I'm all of four months into the job, um, but this is where my heart is with agriculture. So I have been absolutely thrilled to be back and, and honored to be with you, Orion. Honored to be with you because we did several things together while Mike Johans was secretary. Do you look back on any of those moments that were extremely memorable? Oh, my gosh. My time at USDA was absolutely life-changing for me, Uh, just in both seeing the leadership and the commitment to transparency and honesty. And uh, so life-changing in a way of we had mad cow going on and avian influenza and Doha and all those things. But it was the leadership example that really impacted me. A lot of things to work on, as there still are today. But let's talk about American Farm Bureau and its 100 years of service. Quite a tradition. And being the voice of agriculture means something different today than it did back then. You know, when when Farm Bureau started, 98% of the population had a direct connection to agriculture. And that's completely flipped. Now fewer than less than 2%. So being the voice of agriculture uh, is something we take very, very seriously. And agriculture is bothered by some of the perceptions that are out there dealing with food, its quality, variety, and all of that. Do you get involved in that uh, with American Farm Bureau? So we absolutely do, both from a foundation standpoint. The foundation does a lot of ag education and classroom work, books and games and um, in fact, just surpassed a quarter of a million young people who have played one of the games that they put out. So in, in lots of little ways, we're making inroads, and, and we're going to put even more focus on that consumer engagement. We think that's really, really important because 
um, well over 80% of the public still says they trust farmers, just not so sure about farming, right? So we have to close that gap and demonstrate. And, and the beauty of it is it's not a hard story to tell, Orion, right? Farmers have always been committed to sustainability and committed to doing the right thing. And that's what people want to hear. So as we look ahead, there will be a farm bill in the distant future, and it will come quicker than probably we realize. But I remember when Mike Johans was secretary, you traveled all over the country to put that farm bill together at that time, didn't you? We sure did. We did listening sessions in every single state. And boy, was that a monumental undertaking. So interesting that, you know, typically there's a tremendous amount of focus on, oh, the next farm bill is coming. And yes. we've had so, so many other things going on that that, that focus hasn't, hasn't um, quite been there yet. So looking ahead to uh, January and the Farm Bureau Convention, you'll be where and uh, what highlights can you talk about so far? We'll be in Austin, Texas, and we're going to tackle some of the big topics uh, happening in agriculture right now. Uh, For one thing, we're putting together a new program. We know that this is a difficult time for, for a lot of farmers. You know, they're some of the most resilient people in, in the country, right? But with the crossroads of the trade war and the weather variability and the down economy, um, we're going to help train some folks to recognize the signs when somebody is really, really struggling so that we can get them help. Um, so it's not just... We have a lot to accomplish on the policy front, and we're going to talk about some of those um, policy positions and goals at our convention, but we're also going to pay attention to to how our members are doing and making sure we're taking care of them. Pleasure to work with you, and we look forward to celebrating at uh, Austin, Texas. Terry Moore, who is Vice President of Communications, the American Farm Bureau Federation. 17 minutes after 5 o'clock here on the Saturday morning show as we look forward to the Thanksgiving week holiday. And uh, that sort of uh, begins our various uh, shutdowns of the markets through the New Year's holiday. And that means Christmas shutdown. It means New Year's shutdown. And of course, this uh, coming Thursday, the markets will be closed for Thanksgiving Day. One of the things that has been happening a great deal, it seems like, on radio and television commercials is Black Friday coming up. That means shopping on Friday. But one of our fine sponsors here on the Saturday morning show and throughout the day is Blaine's Farm and Fleet. And I like what they sent out recently. They said Blaine's Farm and Fleet Stores will close on Thanksgiving Day to allow associates and customers to spend the holiday with family and friends before reopening at 6 a.m. on Black Friday, November 29th. This is something uh, because Blaine's is a family, really. And at Blaine's Farm and Fleet, family comes first. And for 64 years, their stores have closed to allow their associates a happy and restful Thanksgiving Day with their families. That statement from Blaine Gilbertson, CEO and president. 
who went on to say, I'm honored to continue the traditions created by my dad, Bert Blaine, and uncle, Claude Blaine. We are a second-generation family-owned business, and thanks to our strong family values, we will continue to be closed on all major holidays to show our gratitude to the more than 4,400 associates who work hard for our company and communities year-round. I like that, and I want to say thank you to Blaine's Farm and Fleet for following this rule that uh, I don't think there are many retail outlets, whether in agriculture or otherwise, that do that anymore because their employees have to work on Thanksgiving Day. So thank you for that. And uh, again, we remind you, markets will be closed on Thursday. There will probably be some closings on Friday, too, or at least shorter trading hours. And then we get to Christmas and we get to New Year's before we get back to a normal trading pattern. But if you uh, are involved in the markets in any way as a producer or as an advisor, uh, keep in mind that there will be interruptions. Not only will markets be closed, but some of the reports that we expect and depend on from the U.S. Department of Agriculture will not be coming out or available at their normal times because, again, the uh, offices at USDA will be closing for those holidays. So keep a watch on that uh, trading schedule because it's going to impact markets wherever we go. Another uh, gentleman that we had the opportunity to uh, sit down and visit with at the Farm Broadcasters Convention in Kansas City is the chairman of the United Soybean Board, Keith Tapp, who is from the state of Kentucky. And uh, having the opportunity to talk to him as a soybean producer and as chairman of the United Soybean Board I mentioned uh, to begin the interview that it has been a challenging time for farmers this year because of weather, trade issues, and some of the other ingredients that go into our agricultural activity. So I asked Keith if he would share with me some of the challenges they've had in this year. We have had a lot of obstacles uh, this year. The, of course, planting season was tough, and uh, guess where we live, it was a little easier to get our crop planted. We had a, um, a little more uh, window there to get our soybeans and corn and, and you know planted. So I, I don't want to brag, but we did have a good year considering. Um, and then, like I say, the farmers just are faced with so many things right now that we have no control over. And pretty much anything a farmer does, he has no control over. So we, we just have to have the faith and keep the faith that tomorrow's going to be a better day. I've had some people say, why does African swine fever have an impact on a soybean grower in the United States? Could you answer that one for me? Uh, well, that's pretty easy, right. Uh, of course, soybeans grown for the protein. Uh, the value that is in the bean is used to feed our animals. Animals are our number one customer. And with that, you know, when you've, you take a cut in the swine production and you have issues like that, then it's definitely going to affect, you know, a farmer. So. so a lot of our soybeans moving into China were to feed dogs. Uh, you know, China's always been a big mark, 
market for yeah. us. Uh, they're a good partner, have been for many, many years. Uh, we've maintained, you know, relationships with them. Conversations still going on. Uh, we have, you know, American Soybean Associations trying to work out uh, issues. They work with, you know, the legislators. So we, we as USB farmers, we just want to produce the best bean that we can, uh, the high quality bean that uh, that so many people want, and that's that's our position, and we feel like we're we're still doing that. It's been interesting to me to see how you take that small seed and change it because you've made a lot of improvements in that soybean, haven't you? We have. We're very fortunate in the states to have scientists that are working with our land grant universities with. Uh, you know, private industry, uh, USB, a lot of our funds go to help uh, fund some of this research. We're proud to do that and proud of the accomplishments. That's a part of sustainable or being sustainable as well. Uh, development of beans that uh, can withstand and, and resist uh, pests and, and insects, you know, the uh, the herbicides that we use, we're trying to use less and grow more. So we're just very uh, pleased with the, the route we're taking and, and the end result. Sustainability over the years, over the decades, I've heard so many definitions, but I know it's important to your industry. What's your definition of sustainability? You're exactly right. There are so many definitions. I've heard so many things, and, and no one would, you know, could come up with a concrete definition, but I'll give you mine. You know, to be sustainable is to be able, on a farm, is to be able to, uh, to produce what we produce uh, and make a living. And as a farmer, to, uh, to leave our, our, our farms in better condition even than what we found them. And that, of course, entails... Uh, working conservation programs and and different things like uh, we just mentioned with the scientists that have come up with uh, new seeds that can help us to uh, produce more for less. So over the years I've watched this soybean growing area move north. At one time McLean County, Illinois was the number one county in soybean production. I think Cass County, North Dakota is now number one. Is that going to continue moving north? We hope so. I mean, that's another thing. We just keep developing new beans, new varieties, uh, different uh, uh, beans that can grow in different areas. Of course, we have the high leg bean that's new. Uh, we're really excited about that and, and finding that it can be grown all over the country. Uh, there are so many uses that uh, can be uh, w that we can capitalize on, not only on food, but industrial use. And, uh, you know, it, it's just an exciting time to be a part of this industry. Keith Tapp, who is chairman of the United Soybean Board. And we're at 27 minutes after 5 o'clock here on the Saturday morning show. I want to share with you a newspaper column that my friend Paul Wallum sent to me this past week. A newspaper column written by Jerry Apps of Wisconsin. I've known Jerry for, well, several decades. And he grew up on a Wisconsin farm a professor emeritus at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and the author of more than 35 books, many of them on rural history and country life. And this column dealt with any uh, with something that will ring a bell with anybody who uh, is from Norway and a member of a Lutheran church congregation, as was the case with me growing up. 
because this is the time of year when these rural congregations will serve loot fisk and lefsa suppers to raise money for the church. So let me share Jerry's column that was headlined, For 58 years I managed to avoid loot fisk. Little did I know when I married into a Norwegian family that I was expected to enjoy the Norwegian delicacy Lutfisk. For 58 years, I have successfully avoided Lutfisk. That's dried codfish that is soaked in a lye solution for several days to rehydrate it. All of this changed a few Saturdays ago when our friend Patty Putnam invited my brother-in-law, my wife, and me to attend the 72nd annual Lutefisk dinner at the Vermont Lutheran Church located near Black Earth, Wisconsin. I was amazed to learn that over 900 people had signed up for this annual event, and according to Pastor Barry Hers, people come from near and far, this year from Maryland, Arizona, and Missouri, besides from all over Wisconsin. And about every 45 minutes, a new batch of people were served from about 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. The meal was served family-style. They served 600 pounds of lutefisk, 620 pounds of boiled potatoes, green beans, cranberry relish, and lefsa. For the unknowing, lefsa is made from potatoes and rolled flat and thin. I say it's like a tortilla. But the Vermont church cooks made 1,400 12-inch rounds of lefsa, using an additional 350 pounds of potatoes. Not to forget the Norwegian cookies of many kinds, just the best. To prepare the lutefisk, it is rinsed with cold water to remove the lye, then boiled or baked and is served with lots of butter. I ate some lutefisk, but with my German upbringing, I could not find anything especially notable about its taste. I found this old Norwegian-American saying about half the Norwegians who immigrated to America came to escape Lutfisk. The other half came to spread the gospel of the wonderful taste of Lutfisk. And I guess that says it all. So to all of those churches that will be serving the Lutfisk suppers between now and Christmas, Get out there and enjoy, because it is a tradition, certainly, in the Norwegian communities. Well, thank you for joining us here on the Saturday Morning Show on WGN. It's 5.33 on this Saturday morning on WGN Radio Chicago. Thanks for coming along every week at this time as we spend time talking about Lutfisk and Lefse. Oh, we do that once a year probably, but we do talk a lot about the agricultural activity that is happening or not happening. Coming up, Max Armstrong will join us to talk markets with Clayton Pope and uh, a discussion again on the challenging year that 2019 has been for food producers all across the country. Here in Arizona yesterday, I traveled up to Cottonwood, Arizona, to visit with Andy Grossetti and uh, Grossetta and his wife, Mary Beth, who I uh, met when he was president of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. He's a rancher here in uh, Arizona, 
And he also talked about the challenge, but for him, it wasn't too much rain. It wasn't any rain at all, because until we got the rain that we did on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday of this week, which in my rain gauge in the backyard uh, said nearly two inches, and he got an 1.8 inches, but he said that was the first rain he had gotten on his rangeland pastures since February 21st of this year. So anyway, we'll continue to cover what's happening, and right now it's time for Samuelson Says. I'm Orion, and this coming week, hoping that you'll take the time to say thank you on Thanksgiving Day. It's Black Friday all month long at your local Chevy dealer. Now, during the Chevy Black Friday sales event, get 20% below MSRP on Chevy's most popular cars, trucks, and SUVs. Go to ChevyDriveChicago.com for details and score big. We are approaching the Thanksgiving Day holiday. That's a time for family and friends to come together and share company and hopefully say thank you, God, for what you have provided for us this year. But this year is a special challenging year from the standpoint of food producers, farmers, and ranchers, all of the people who put food on our table, clothes on our back, a roof over our head, and now energy in our tank. These producers have gone through a challenging year, and I hope you will give thanks especially for those people on this Thanksgiving Day holiday, because if they did not work hard to produce what they do, you and I would be standing in lines at the grocery store or supermarket in order to get the food and nourishment that we need. I've had a campaign for quite a few years now, since I do go to a lot of banquets, farm banquets and other events, where there is always an invocation before the meal is served. And during that invocation, invariably, the person delivering the invocation will say words like this, Bless the hands that prepared this food. But I'm asking you to add another line to that prayer. Thank you to the people who prepared for the food And then add this line, thank you to the people who produced the food. Because these people put up with all of the challenges they face as families year after year so that you and I can enjoy the fruits of their labors, the products that come from farms and ranches across America. Give thanks to those people. Happy Thanksgiving. My thoughts on Samuelson Says. A presentation of Nexstar Media Group. And at uh, about 22 minutes before 6 o'clock here on the Saturday morning show, we're going to take a look at market activity in the agricultural community and some of the reasons prices have been doing what they have been doing. Max Armstrong standing by with his guest, and we'll join them and uh, when we continue here on, on the Saturday Morning Show. Clayton Pope is back with us this weekend. Clayton Pope Commodities, based in Champaign, Illinois. 
It's good to see you here. Thanksgiving and the harvest goes on. Yeah, it does for some. Boy, this is a crazy year. I think a lot of people are ready to close the book on this one. We did note in the past week more and more of those social media shots showed us the last few rows, the last few plants. And it was such a a joyful moment, you could tell, for those producers who were wrapping it up and others. Uh, You could see the ruts yet in the field. You could see the struggle going on. And there is still a significant amount of this corn crop yet to be harvested. Oh, there really is. I mean, these guys, I feel bad for them. They're struggling. Um, You know, the the percent harvested is is still really lagging in corn. Beans, I guess, on that last report is only about 4% behind the five-year average at this point. I think 91 versus 95%, so not that big a deal there. But uh, corn, good grief, it's a story that just won't end. And the remaining crop out there may be hard to get yet because of... I think so. I mean, they're saying more and more. I can't remember the exact percentage, but North Dakota was only like, what, 25% harvested or something like that. So uh, it almost seems undoubtedly that a lot of that's not going to come out until spring at this point. How many farmers will be content to leave it out there? They'll just park the combine and say, we're going to go back out at, out there in March. That's kind of a risky proposition, isn't well, it? That'd make for a pretty uneasy Christmas, I think. Yeah, for sure. But uh, some of those guys are used to it. I mean, it's, it's a last resort. They sure don't want to, but uh, it's... It's not as disastrous as you might think, usually. I mean, you're definitely going to take some kind of hit. It almost seems like we've settled into the doldrums here as far as the market is concerned. Boy, it kind of seems like it. Um, it's, it's hard to believe the first notice day for December is coming up so soon here. But, um, uh, heck, you look at those option premiums, and uh, you can tell this market is just not looking for anything exciting to come down the road for quite a while. We have, at times, for one reason or another, and I just think back through the years that we wound up with some kind of a Santa Claus rally. That <laughs> you got into the holiday period and, hmm, something happened and had not been anticipated. And there was, either before Christmas or maybe in that Christmas to New Year's period, a somewhat of a rally. Is there anything like that out there looming? Anything that even remotely holds the prospect for delivering here for the growers this year? Yeah, I'm ready any time, but... Um... Well, I, I can't even believe this word's going to come out of my mouth because I'm not real big on following seasonals. But uh, the seasonals, you know, for both corn and beans, uh, they start to turn up here you know, pretty soon. And I think you could argue that might be delayed a little bit this year just because of the late harvest. Uh, so whatever those forces are that kind of cause those seasonals to take place, uh, maybe they will kick into gear a little bit later. So it seems like the market's kind of trying to search for some support here right now. And I uh, can't call myself bullish, but I do think we're probably pretty close to, to the harvest lows. And uh, I would expect to see some kind of uh, retracement here to the upside. Some of the seasonal gains have been tied, have they not, in the past to problems in South America or anticipated problems, drying soils down there, for example? Mm-hmm, absolutely. Uh, and, and it looked, uh, shoot, three weeks ago or so, it looked like that might be an issue. Um, but the recent rains have kind of put that on the back burner for right now. I mean, there have been some really good widespread rains in both Argentina and Brazil. However, uh, the, the rain amounts they're getting, and let's say maybe they're looking for one or two inches in a particular area in Brazil, as much as that sounds like, you know, for the soils down there and for their average, that's really only about half what their normal rainfall for this period would be on a weekly basis. So that being the case, even though they're getting some rain right now, like I said, it's sort of putting those uh, fears on the back burner for now. They're not out of the woods yet. In in uh, it's such a bizarre business. We're sitting there hoping for a, you know some kind of trout scare in, in any part of the world. But um, 
you know, it's not that hard to imagine that that could be a concern hitting this market pretty soon if, if uh, uh, these rains start to shut off again. And even as they are right now, it's not really enough to replenish those subsoil moistures. There's something like, oh, depending on the area and so forth, you know, something like 50 to 80 percent of the acreage down there in, uh, in Brazil is uh, uh, less than average of the 30-day and their 90-day you know, moisture profile. We know they've expanded their crop acreage. Is the expansion such that it, it spreads their risk a little bit? It makes it less likely that the market's going to get excited about weather challenges in South America. I think that's true. Um, it's a good point. I mean, uh, the driest areas right now in Brazil are the southern areas, and uh, as far as the bean production goes, that's not the, the heaviest production areas. So kind of like the U.S., I mean, it, it's hard to get a you know across-the-country uh, disaster looming. But uh, it, it's still, if it's severe enough for even you know a third of the acreage or something like that, I think it could impact markets. What will it take to get the market really excited about China again? Mm. I mean, we would... See, at various times over the past few months, a spike in price that correlated with what was going on in the equity markets, too, on any little bit of news coming out of China, or conversely, a a drop in price. Are we getting past uh, those reactions at all? It would certainly seem to be the case. I mean, uh, you go back a year ago, if there was a tweet or an announcement or whatever, it would, would, you know, you see the beans, it would send them one way or the other. Now it seems like the beans just kind of don't even hardly blink. Uh, however, the stock market, it seems like the, the, maybe it's just the algo traders or whatever, it continues to react pretty violently to so, those kind of stories. But uh, it does seem like the bean market in particular has become more and more immune to that really affecting it. I think and there's just a lot of disenchantment with the whole thing right now. Uh, I've sort of been a firm believer, and I, and I believe I, I said this last time I was on your show, that uh, I, I, frankly, I, I think the impact of a trade deal or not, uh, as far as uh, affecting the soybean market, is is really overrated. Uh, I mean, let's look at, look at the Chinese demand, and not only you know the purchases from us, but but uh, our shipments to them as well of soybeans. They've been big in the last couple months. So, and and, and we're in the middle of a trade war, and, and you know they keep granting these temporary uh, reprieves from from the tariffs and that kind of thing. The bottom line is, if they want the beans, they're going to buy them from us. Um, but I think the also the other bottom line is they would probably prefer to buy them elsewhere, you know, just because of the whole political thing. But um, uh, so whether there's a trade deal or not, it seems like they, you know, they've managed to be a better or a bigger customer than anybody thought they would be under the circumstances. And as such, uh, my feeling is that whether or not a trade deal is signed is probably not going to be that impactful to the soybean market. Let me move into the world of politics for just a moment. Oh, oh boy. I know. Look, look out here. <laughs> I know, everybody who rides a CTA knows that they know that that third rail out there is the one that's energized. So we, we kind of stay away from <laughs> yeah. that. But oh boy, you might regret this. No, let me just ask you. You know, we're getting closer and closer to November of 2020. The yeah. clock is ticking. There, we quite often see in an election year rabbits pulled out of the hat, and it doesn't make any difference who's in the White House. We see things that have been done maybe through uh, various existing agriculture programs, things that USDA can do. The the secretary who's sitting there can go out to an event somewhere near Maquoketa, Iowa, and announce a grant. But but there are things that happen, regardless mm-hmm. of who's in the White House. Mm-hmm. What is the prospect for something like that that could be meaningful in 2020? And, and I note, and I simply ask you, and I, you know, these MFP payments that have been granted to producers this year to try to make up for the trade war have indeed been significant. They haven't made the producers whole, 
But as many economists have pointed out, it would be a very different story from an income standpoint if they weren't there. Will there be more of those in 2020? Well, absolutely. It's been very impactful. I think uh, probably one of the major reasons why you're seeing uh, such strong basis levels in, in a lot of the country this year, the eastern Corn Belt in particular, I mean, it's just given people a lot more staying power, ability to hold on, you know, the real tight grip on, on, on their production and not be sellers as aggressively as they might normally be. But uh, rabbits out of the hat, boy. Um, well, I just got done sort of giving my feeling on the tariffs, uh, although there's no question if, if Trump were to roll back the tariffs, you know, like the December 15th one, and people are making that look like a big line in the sand, uh, let alone any you know possible new proposed ones like he's hinted at this last week. That, that I would think, give a boost to the market, although I think it would be kind of temporary. Um, he's pretty in a little bit of a corner right now. I don't know how he could do that without really looking like he's just throwing in the towel and, and look like a very weak negotiator at this point, but who knows? I mean, there's a lot of directions that could take. But besides that, I guess I sincerely hope nobody starts talking about some kind of set-aside or something like that, because I think we're, we're struggling to keep the market share we have in the world right now. I mean, if you look at a chart, particularly like of corn, our, our market share of the world export market has been you know, falling dramatically. And I think any kind of like set-aside or reduced acreage program, anything that would encourage that would really just be handing more market share to the, to our global competitors on a silver platter. And that would be a real mis- long-term policy mistake, in my opinion. But um, besides that, um, you know, I, I guess the ob- most obvious possibility would be you know, some kind of big jump in the whole uh, ethanol uh, world, you know, in, in biofuels. But uh, There is room there for the administration to do something, isn't there? Well, there really is. And uh, with the election coming up, uh, that would probably be a pretty fair game. You know, a lot of people feel like he's really slighted or you know, turned his back on, on on the farming community there with the, uh, the credits given to the oil industry and all that. Market reaction would be limited, though, would it not? I think it would be limited, but it would be a positive. But, uh, you know, between that and the, uh, you know, the Japanese trade deal and then, you know, if, uh, maybe we'd come some kind of Band-Aid approach on this Chinese thing, you know, maybe all those would add up. I, I do feel that uh, as, as bad as corn demand is now, I don't think it can get worse, knock on wood. Uh, and it doesn't mean it's got to get better immediately. But uh, just this last week, we've seen uh, at least three daily sales of some pretty significant size of corn to unknown destinations, but it just uh, that's living proof that uh, we are finally more competitive on a global basis. Is that headed to China, that corn? I doubt it, but uh, maybe. I mean, unknown destinations, I mean, that's, that's always the first thought. But uh, Are they still sitting on significant supplies of corn, whatever condition it is in? Uh, it seems to be the case, yes, reportedly. But uh, that's always a little sketchy in terms of how much to count on that. You talked about the basis earlier. There's some fairly good plays around out there, are there not, in terms of basis? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty mind-blowing, really. I mean, some not of these a, Farmers always... are not all treated equally, obviously, during the crop well, that's season. that's for sure. But and, in and terms of the, the geographical differences are crazy. I mean, we've got a branch office uh, just west of, Indiana, of Indianapolis, and uh, you know, some of these people are looking at uh, like a posted bid of 30 over. You know, for the corn, and you don't have to go f- uh, too many miles uh, west of that into Illinois, and you're looking at you know, 25 under. I mean, it's it's crazy, the, the differences here. For uh, someone listening to us who wonders about that, what is responsible for those pockets of strength? Is it proximity, in some cases, to the river, proximity to a, an ethanol plant, proximity to a large uh, livestock population? What is at work in these instances? Well, kind of all of the above, I think. I mean, you know, 
normally, and, and especially this year, I mean, you always have your their absolute strongest basis levels on the East Coast, you know, just because it's such a hog production area and a corn deficit area. And so I think you, you generally see, a, you know, the basis will weaken from that as you go west. And, and so uh, that's just a little bit more markedly uh, extreme this year, I think. But um, but I think the, the farmer holding, like like we talked about a minute ago, the, the ability of farmers to hold on a little tighter. I think uh, speaking in real broad sense, most farmers are probably finding themselves undersold right now because their production ended up being better than they thought it would be, and they're afraid to make the sales back when maybe they normally would have, especially when the prices are pretty decent. But everybody was convinced prices were going to skyrocket, and it it looked like we were going to have a production disaster for a while there. So as such, here they are undersold. Uh, yet, in spite of that, there you know there seems to be a real bullish sentiment out there. Thinking they're that, reluctant to pull the trigger. It's just move. a matter of time before you know, people see the light and the production's not there. That's we can argue about that all day for sure. I, yeah, traditionally, I think when you see across the board strong farmer holding, traditionally, my experience has been that it's, it's bearish flat price eventually because the market knows it's there, and. Uh, I don't think higher prices or, as we've seen, higher basis really wrenches it loose. More than anything, I think time will. You know, people have bills to pay. They don't want to pay the storage or they worry about condition or whatever. So the stuff will move. Probably just going to take some time. And I think as time goes on, and then also as we finally see the uncertainty wind down in terms of just what exactly production is, which presumably we'll you know, know in that January report, um, at that point then I think you'll start to see these these basis extremes level out pretty quickly. Presumably, we'll know in the January report. That Let's hope there's so. There's that other shoe that falls in June sometimes. I know, I know, exactly. But at least it'll be a number that everybody's going to have to live with for a while at that point. Thanks for being with us, Clayton. Hope you have a great Thanksgiving. Thank you very much. You too. Clayton Pope, Clayton Pope Commodities. And uh, continuing a conversation that uh, Max had with Clayton Pope, Late this week, the White House asked Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley's office for input on the administration's latest proposal to boost the ethanol market in 2020. The White House request shows the Trump administration may be having second thoughts about the proposal, which the president had hoped would shore up his support in the farm bill. So, uh, Senator Grassley's office will respond, and the Environmental Protection Agency is already due to miss a November 30th deadline to finalize that proposal dealing with ethanol. And on the political side as well, House Democrats still are not satisfied with the terms of the U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade agreement, and Speaker Pelosi said they're getting closer She said, I think we're narrowing our differences, but so far they haven't reached an agreement on that, uh, what I call NAFTA II, but it's the new trade agreement between Canada, Mexico, and the United States. So a lot going on, but I hope uh, if you're in agriculture, you'll take time to uh, enjoy the Thanksgiving Day holiday, and uh, we'll be of course, covering the agricultural story. But right now, thank you. Thanks to Bob Ferguson, my engineer, for hitting all the dials and the switches. And thank you for listening here on the Saturday Morning Show. 
Orion Samuelson keeps you connected to the world of business and agriculture on WGN. Hear his reports weekday mornings on the Steve Cochran Show and during the noon hour on the Wintrust Business Lunch. Plus, catch Orion and Max on Saturday mornings at 5 a.m. only on Chicago's WGN Radio 720. 